I invite you to remain standing as we read today from the 51st Psalm. Excuse me. I invite you to hear these holy words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So are you, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This is the word of God for the people of God. We again say a word of greeting this morning to all of you. We're certainly thankful that you're here. We're grateful for those who are streaming our service as well as watching on television. We're thankful that you're a part of our service of worship this morning. I had vacation the last couple of weeks. Susan and I had our two and a half year old grandson and our eight month old grandson with us the last two weeks. So we are exhausted to say the least. It couldn't have been any better. In fact, I haven't been this tired since never. So it was a wonderful experience. I wouldn't trade a moment of it, uh, but we are certainly thankful for, to be back. We're grateful for those who are here today. We remind everybody watching online and on television, as well as those in the sanctuary, that we are followers of a God who loves us and cares about all of us. We're created in the image of God. And that means that we take scripture very seriously, both in the Old and New Testament. We remind ourselves in the Old Testament over and over again, God reminds the Hebrew people that they are to take care of the widows and the orphans. That means the most vulnerable of people. When COVID first struck, we were very concerned about senior adults. We isolated them. They were the first to be able to get vaccinated. We now recognize that the ones who are our youngest are oftentimes getting sick. They are the ones who are most vulnerable. It is our responsibility to get vaccinated. It is our responsibility, I think, to wear masks in public. And it's our responsibility to take care of the children. One of the faithful employees of this church who has been on staff for 42 years said to me recently, he is a man of great wisdom and knowledge. He said, I wear a mask and I got the vaccine because it's our responsibility to save the babies. That sums it up, you all. It is our responsibility to save the babies. If you have not been vaccinated, those in the sanctuary or those who are watching online or on television, please do so. It is our role and responsibility to take care of the widows and the orphans. To translate that into the vernacular, it means take care of the most vulnerable. We have a responsibility and an obligation. Let's please do it. I am thankful you're here today. Let us pray. Oh Lord, in the silence of this moment, prepare our hearts and our minds to hear your word for us this day. 
and work your will in our lives. Amen. I've told this in another venue, but it fits the point quite well. A number of years ago, when I was early in my ministry, I was serving a church that had absolutely no staff other than me. I was the youth director, I was a custodian, I was in charge of the United Methodist Women's Group, I mowed the lawns, I cleaned the bathrooms, I did it all. And finally the church raised enough money to have a part-time secretary. But it was a little bitty tiny facility, which meant she had to also office with me. My office was a Sunday school room, a gathering room, and an office which put her in a position where when she was at her desk, her back faced me. She was up there just a few hours a week to put together the bulletin for Sunday morning and also the newsletter. But when we were in conversation, I was always looking at her back. One day, she came into the office wearing a beautiful new silk blouse. She looked very pretty. She sat down, in fact, I commented on her beautiful blouse. As is my custom, I began my work at my desk, and when I write, I write with a fountain pen. I have for years. I write my sermons with a fountain pen, correspondence with a fountain pen. I love writing with a fountain pen, but there is a problem on occasion with a fountain pen, and that is they will clog. And when they clog, the easiest way to unclog them is to shake them up and down. It loosens up the ink. Sandy, my part-time secretary, with her back to me, was sitting there while I found myself with a clogged pen. I began to shake that pen and shake it and shake it and loosened it up and continued to write. Sometime later, I looked up and I had hosed down the back of that beautiful blouse with fountain pen ink. I mean, I covered that thing. I unleashed a fury of ink all over her back and she didn't know it. And for a moment I thought, I'm not gonna tell her. <laughs> She's gonna wonder what in the world happened, but I knew I couldn't do that. And I said, Sandy, please turn around and look at me. I am mortified at what I have done. I have hosed down your back with ink. She said, ha ha, real funny. I said, Sandy, I promise you, I am not making it up. She went into the bathroom came back in a few minutes and said, yes, you did. You hosed down my blouse. I said, listen, I promise you, let's go right now to the store. I'll buy you a new blouse. You can have the rest of the day off. Take the rest of the month off as far as I'm concerned. I can't believe I would do something so stupid. She said, do you mind if I go home and change? I said, of course not. Stay home, please. She said, I'm gonna go home and change and I'll come back. She came back in a little while, sat down and continued her work. I begged her to forgive me. Over and over again, I said, Sandy, I am so sorry that I did this. I cannot believe I did it. And finally, she turned around and she looked at me and she said, stop, you did it. You said you were sorry, now let's move on. I think that's exactly what God says to us when we mess up. When we make a mistake and we come before God and we say, God, please forgive me. I am sorry for what I have done. We only have to say that once. And God says, you know what? That's enough. You did it. You said you were sorry. Now let's move on. A long time ago, there was a man by the name of David who ascended to the throne, the king of Israel, a man of great power and influence. 
And one day as he looks out a window, he sees a beautiful woman bathing and he has to have her as his own. The problem is she's already married, but that doesn't stop David at all. He takes her as his own. She now has conceived a child from David. David's got to figure out what to do now. She's married to somebody else. He hatches a plan. When Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, comes home, David will say, spend time with your wife. Uriah comes in from the battlefield. David calls him in and tells him, you go home, you have worked hard, spend time with your wife. But to David's shock and surprise, Uriah says, I will not. I need to save all of my energy and all of my effort to be a part of the army. David doesn't know what to do. He hatches another plan. This time he gives instruction that Uriah is to be sent to the front lines of the battle. And then the rest of the troops are to leave him there, vulnerable. That's exactly what happens and Uriah dies in battle. David thinks he's off the hook. Now he can take Bathsheba as his wife. No one will be the wiser. He has committed adultery and he has hatched a plan for one of his faithful troops, his loyal soldiers, to be put to death. But there is a problem. Soon after, the prophet Nathan comes. And Nathan says, I know what you have done, and more importantly, God knows what you have done. You are a sinful man. And David breaks down and recognizes his enormous sin. And then he pins what we call Psalm 51. This is David's way of coming before God and saying, cleanse me, wash me, pure, purge me, make me whiter than snow. David is pouring himself out before God, asking to be forgiven. And as heinous as his acts were, we believe in a God who says, you did it? You said you were sorry, now let's move on. That's the unique gift of forgiveness. We believe in a God who is ready, willing, and able to give us another shot, another chance, and is willing to enable us to move beyond our past failures into a new and brighter day. In 1 John, John writes that if we confess our sin, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't matter what we have done. God's love and capacity to forgive is greater than any sin we could commit. But we have to be sincerely sorry. We have to repent. We have to have that level of regret that acknowledges we have done wrong and we need that forgiveness. The most common word in the New Testament for forgiveness in the Greek means to fling, hurl, release, let go of whatever it is that has shackled us or whatever it is that causes us pain because of our unwillingness to forgive someone who may have harmed us or someone we love. The extraordinary thing about forgiveness is that it is a gift given to us by God a gift that we can receive, but it is also a gift that we can give away. 
a gift we give to ourselves. When we finally reach a point of being able to forgive, we're no longer shackled by the resentment and the anger. It is a gift we can give someone else to have a possible restoration of a broken relationship. Forgiveness never means condoning or acknowledging that somehow now it's okay, what you did is okay. It can still be wrong. It can still hurt. But forgiveness enables us to leave the past and move into the future with hope and appreciate the present, not burdened by our anger or our resentment or our guilt or our shame or whatever it may be, to hurl it, to fling it, to release it. That's what God does for us. The thing about forgiveness is, as someone once said, when we genuinely forgive, we set a prisoner free. And then we discover that that prisoner is us. Forgiveness actually shackles us. It chains us to the past. We feel that sense of anger and frustration and bitterness rising up in us if we don't find within ourselves the capacity to forgive. And that is not easy. I'm a human being like everybody else, and I know how hard that is. But I hope and pray that every time I have ever gone before God and asked to be forgiven for something I have done I wish I hadn't done, or something I've left undone that I should have done, I believe that there is a God greater than anything I may have done who has the capacity to forgive. But that same God expects us to do it in return. When we resent someone because of what they have done to cause us or someone we love harm, resentment means by definition literally to feel all over again. And who wants to feel that pain all over again? Forgiveness allows us to move beyond that. In 2012, Craig Erickson, age 73, was sentenced to life in prison for murder. Craig Erickson had killed his high school classmate at the age of 72. It seems that for a lifetime, literally, Craig Erickson held bitterness and anger toward his high school classmate who 50 years earlier plus in high school had committed some kind of locker room prank on Erickson. And for more than 50 years, he let that seethe and grow and that bitterness became all-consuming to the point that at the age of 72, he knocked on the door of Norman Johnson's house, the one who had committed the prank, and when Norman Johnson opened the door, Craig Erickson shot him dead. More than 50 years earlier, he had lived with that bitterness and that anger all that time. It had destroyed him. He would end up taking a life. He would end up being incarcerated the rest of his life as a result of his unwillingness to let go, to hurl, to fling, to accept the gift of forgiveness and to also give that gift to someone else. Listen, we all recognize forgiveness is not easy, but one of the things we do is take scripture seriously if we follow Jesus Christ. And he said, we gotta do it. 
Jesus said to Peter, you don't forgive seven times. You can imagine in the moment Peter's grateful. Gosh, who in the world wants to forgive somebody as many as seven? And then Jesus adds a caveat, not seven times, but 70 times seven, an infinite number of times you have a responsibility to forgive. Jesus made that mandate clear. And then he turned around and taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer and we say, forgive us our trespasses, our sin, as we forgive those who sin against us. And then Jesus proved it himself by hanging on the cross and saying on that cross while he was writhing in unimaginable pain, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There is the expectation that we are a people of forgiveness, and it's not easy. We all know that. But if we can accept the gift from God, it is our responsibility, says Scripture, that we turn around and give that gift away. If we are unwilling to forgive, Scripture is clear, we don't receive forgiveness. And that means the effort of Jesus Christ on the cross was an effort in futility on our behalf if we're not willing to forgive. In all my years of ministry, the single greatest problem I think that I have had when couples come into my office with marital issues is not money issues, it's not infidelity, it's their unwillingness to let go, unwillingness to forgive each other for even the pettiest of things. And it just builds up and gets stronger and greater and the resentment grows over time. Unforgiveness is a cancer in the life of every human being. And there is a gift that can free us from all of that pain and sorrow and resentment and regret and shame in whatever form it may present itself. It's our responsibility to do that. Now, here's what I find interesting. If you will notice that David does not ask to be forgiven until he's been caught. In fact, he thought he got away with it. It is only after he is caught that he recognizes his grievous mistakes, his deep sin. But he asks God and God forgives him even after he only asked to be forgiven after he was caught. Remember the story of the prodigal son. He rushes home to be back with his father only after he has run out of food and money. But the father still embraces him. And there are times in our life when the only time we really ask to be forgiven is when we finally reach a point where we have exhausted every other means of justifying or rationalizing what we have done. And sometimes out of sheer desperation we come before God and the good news is, like David, like the prodigal son, when we've come before God, only when we have been exposed, God still says, you did it, you said you were sorry, now let's move on. All because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, taking upon himself all of the sin of all of humanity for all of time and dying to that sin. An extraordinary gift, but a gift we have to accept and a gift we have to share in return. I have lived a long time and I can tell you this. There have been many occasions in my life when I have begged someone to forgive me. And there have been many times in life when I have had to forgive someone or struggled with forgiveness. And you know what that is like as well. You live in this world, you know the same thing that I talk about. You have been there. 
Forgiveness is not always easy, and there are occasions in life when things happen that are so awful, we wonder whether anybody would ever have the capacity to actually forgive for what is done. If you will notice in scripture, there is no timetable on forgiveness. Jesus never says when you have been hurt, you need to forgive within the first hour, or you gotta do it by the end of the day, or even by the end of the week. But there is an expectation that we do forgive and some things take longer and the struggle is harder than others. And I do think that God appreciates our effort to try to reach a point to forgive even if we are not there yet. Years ago, I read a book by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace, which is a masterpiece. I would recommend it to anybody. In there, Philip Yancey tells a story about Larry Trapp. Larry Trapp was a grand dragon in the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, a high-ranking official, a man filled with vitriol and anger, a bigot, a racist, a man who used his influence and his power to try to destroy. There was one Jewish family in particular that oftentimes was the target of Larry Trapp's anger. And each time he tried to do something to cause that Jewish family harm or pain, they told him publicly, we forgive you. It ate at him. As time went by, interestingly enough, Larry Trapp got sicker and sicker with severe diabetes and other major health issues that caused him to be in a position where he was dependent on others to care for him. But for whatever reason, his fellow KKK members didn't do it. But guess who took him into their home? That same Jewish family that he had tried to cause so much harm toward for so many years. They brought him into their home. They forgave him, they loved him, they showed him compassion. And Larry Trapp, would renounce anything to do with his past. He gave up and he started the process of trying to ask to be forgiven. He gave up all the literature that he produced, the Nazi flags that hung in his home, everything that he had done that somehow indicated his past, he tried to rid himself of that and all because a Jewish family that he tried to harm forgave him and began the process of loving him and caring for him in his greatest time of need. Forgiveness is a gift. Forgiveness is life-giving. And we believe in a God we know in and through Jesus Christ, no matter what we have done, no matter what we have left undone, who says, I forgive you. You got another shot at it but we have to sincerely repent, we have to be genuine about our remorse, and then we move on. Remember, God says to all of us, and we need to say to each other, you did it. You said you were sorry, now let's move on. Hallelujah. Amen.